Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I don't talk about what the real impact of this is on real patients, real people, every day. The common impact of this, then who's going to? Today, Dr. Chloe Zara, the Vice President of the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, joins the podcast in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Chloe Zara. Dr. Zara is a maternal fetal medicine specialist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and Vice President of the Health Policy and Advocacy Committee of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Dr. Zara, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So to start us off today, I'm always interested in the path others took to a career in medicine. Can, can you share your path? Oh, sure. Um, well, I was, uh, born during medical school for my, during my father's career. So I sort of grew up seeing what a surgical residency looked like. Um, and yet I'm still went into medicine. I thought I was going to be a pediatrician pretty quickly realized, um, during medical school that I was a better personality fit as an obstetrician and handing the babies off to the very gentle and kind pediatricians that I worked with. <laughs> and um, and uh, here I am. Yeah, I don't know. There's, there's, a, there's a longer story in there, I'm sure. But <laughs> always knew I wanted to be a doctor. MSM felt like the right fit. Yeah, no, absolutely. And several people that I've talked to have been like, yeah, I was born into it. My, both of my parents were doctors and so forth. So can you describe your path to health policy and advocacy, um, especially in the committee for the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine? Absolutely. So this is, um, I've always been really interested in obesity and obesity-related comorbidities. And pretty quickly in my maternal fetal medicine fellowship, kind of carve out, carved out my niche in obesity and diabetes in pregnancy. And when I graduated from fellowship, took over sort of the diabetes program, the diabetes and pregnancy program um, at my institution at the time. And within, I would say, six months of starting to do almost exclusively care for people with diabetes during pregnancy, I, I, I got a little bit radicalized about the impact of poverty and lack of access to care, um, particularly for diabetes, which is such an expensive condition for people even who have insurance. Um, in a state like Massachusetts, where we have this incredibly low rate of uninsured folks, we still saw massive disparities between our patients who had Medicaid and our patients who were commercially insured and our patients who had commercial insurance, but high deductibles who couldn't, who had their IVF medication covered, but not their insulin. And so that was what kind of took me on a left turn towards how healthcare was delivered and, and the impact of policy on that. And um, as a reproductive healthcare provider, Unfortunately, we don't have the privilege of not paying attention to policy because it so directly impacts all of our patients. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings me to my next question, is that sort of safe abortion and the ability of clinicians to have conversations with their patients about the full range of reproductive choices available to them, you know, either directly or through referral, seems like an important part of a practice of caring for a reproductive age woman. And suddenly, many of your colleagues are now confronted with the inability to do that. Um, what impact do you think that that's going to have? And, you know, what are we, I think we know some, but what aren't we really looking at? I mean, I think every day we, we learn some new way and which is this is going to impact providers and patients. Um, right. I think that there's, there's implications for obviously 
what kinds of options we're able to offer our patients. There are group, you know, as a maternal fetal medicine specialist, I focus on people who have chronic diseases who find themselves pregnant or are trying to get pregnant. Um, and often that means that we are talking about optimizing their disease before or during pregnancy. But the truth is sometimes there are diseases that can't be optimally controlled and pregnancy is, is dangerous. Um, and, and, and not having the option to offer those folks termination as a choice that can be life-saving is absolutely unthinkable, I think, to our entire specialty right now. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that there are all sorts of ways in which this is going to play out. And I think people are really scared right now and it's the other problem because we don't know. There's no, there's no legal precedent for something like this in our career lifetime. Yeah, I mean, there's no good analogy, but you know, in different areas of medicine, if you took one critical tool away, for example, let's talk about, you know, just a general surgeon and you have a patient who has a gangrenous foot and you say to them, you can't cut that foot off. You're like, oh, I can't help my patient. Exactly. So obviously the overturn of Roe, there are obvious cases where providers can't refer right. or can't conduct abortions themselves. What are the options? And do we think that like folks are actually going to be coming to Massachusetts to, to get those options? Is that going to happen? Yeah, I think it is going to happen. I think that um, providers in states that have bans, near or total bans on abortion care are really themselves working through what are they legally allowed to provide within their home states right. and what can they help their patients obtain. No one feels comfortable with abandoning their patients right, right now. And talking to my colleagues, particularly in Texas, who've been working through this a little bit already, um, I'd say that's the state where we've seen the most people travel from because it's been in place for the longest. Um, but I think there's still a lot of confusion about what the law actually means, what they can and can't do, what they can and can't say. And because of the way that some of these laws are written that are directly targeting providers, there's a lot of fear in those states. Um, and, and so I think a reluctance to... Uh, formally figure out systems of care. You know, I think that I think it, it drives all sorts of fear-based decision-making, which is totally understandable. Right. And I mean, you know, just geographically, I know that New Mexico, you know, has a totally different law mm -hmm. and having gone to school in Texas um, and knowing and did a rotation in New Mexico, it's a drive. It's a long drive, but it's a drive. It's a I mean, drive. the other thing I think about is some of these patients aren't in that good of health. Putting them in a car and, and driving them somewhere for six, eight, 10 hours is not a great idea for their health. Right. Well, and then you take, I mean, Texas has the largest uninsured population in the country, right? So the financial barriers, um, the, the logistical financial health barriers to people accessing care outside of the state mean that the reality is going to be forced continuation of pregnancy, forced birth. Yeah. And I, I want to pull a quote that you gave the Boston Globe about some states have laws where it's only in dire health situations. That's right. Can you speak about that a little bit? They, I always have a problem when politicians are trying to define something for a medical profession. So how dire is dire? That's a great question. I think no one knows, right? I think that's what we've seen. There's a group out of UT Southwestern that has published their experience um, just since the law went into, you know, SBA went into effect and shows that there are delays in care for things that we would consider life-threatening complications, such as mid-trimester rupture of membranes. You know, you're going to increase the number of people who have sepsis and hemorrhage, which is a predictable outcome of expectantly managing that. Um, and they saw that. They've seen that. Um, and I think 
another state, another case that's gotten a lot of press was the 10-year-old in Ohio who was forced to travel, who, and the attorney general for Ohio said, oh, that would have been covered under an exception. But I don't think that any position would say that being 10 years old is a life-threatening condition. Being 10 years old and being pregnant is a disaster for all sorts of reasons. But I don't know that it, you know, from a medical perspective, these words aren't meaningful, right? Like, and that's the problem with all of this. As you said, the legislation, it just doesn't map to medical reality. I think, you know, I followed Governor Baker, I call him Dr. Baker, <laughs> Governor Baker's law about protecting all of us mm-hmm. here in the Commonwealth for offering legal and safe services. That's right. I'm assuming that your institution has planned for people coming in. How will this affect the care of the women of the Commonwealth? You know, is this going to negatively affect your patients? Um, You know, what kind of load is this going to put on hospitals? I don't think we really know yet. I, I think the reality is we're relatively sheltered from the immediate impact in the Northeast because we're surrounded predominantly by states that are not hostile to abortion. Um, and people drive before they fly, right? And um, so I think that the Northeast is probably not going to see the same kind of volume shifts that places like Illinois, which is adjacent to Missouri, or as you mentioned, New Mexico are going to see. That said, we're definitely thinking about how do we safely, legally care for people that walk into our door, no matter where they come from. You know, what are our obligations to our patients and, 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 what are our obligations to our colleagues to make sure that we're not putting, you know, not just the providers, but like the staff in the operating room for hospital-based abortion provision. We don't want anyone to be at risk, the nurses that are involved in the care, the coordinators who are taking the phone calls. And so there's a lot to think through logistically um, that I think is still very much in process. And I mean, I just, you know, read the article about Georgia's six-week ban. And now mm-hmm. I can remember, you know, a resident also working in the emergency department. There are many women who have no earthly idea that they're pregnant six weeks in. I mean, you know, you may, yeah. may have missed, what, one period? Or in some people's periods aren't one regular. One period. You might not have missed a period, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's six weeks that, and you'll know as an EED physician that, that's the beginning of when we can actually even just establish that it's in the uterus. That's all we can say at six weeks. So yeah, there's nothing meaningful that we can give you in terms of information about a pregnancy other than that it potentially is in the uterus at six weeks. All right. And then one other article, and again, I, I know some of this is not strictly medical, some of it's policy, but mm-hmm. I read something I think in the Atlantic where some folks are actually sort of really worried about tracking women ending their pregnancies using their cell phones because that data is available already to law enforcement for you know other sort of well-established uh, meanings. There's been some talk about sort of these period trackers and how people should probably just not be using them. Any advice that, or have you been talking about that with your colleagues in other states? You know, I know that that's a conversation that's happening in other states and people have been recommending that people delete them. I think a conversation that came up even just today that, that I got an email about was, should there be, you know, for EHR intercompatibility reasons, should we be trying to write in protections so that um, medical records won't be visible to out-of-state providers to protect our patients and, and, and or, you know, and, and how does that square with EMR, EHR incompatibility laws that exist? And, and it's a real, it's a really, uh, it's a sticky mess. Yeah, it is. And sadly, I, when I read the article about how the abortion law in Ireland was overturned, 
I went there for a trip to visit some family in Galway where the incident occurred. The cab driver had probably stated that, you know, Ireland had overturned their law. I suspect that you foresee more incidents of that. I think you even mentioned that. Mm-hmm. Um, the premature rupture of membranes in the third trimester and they they sat on her. Yeah. I mean, it, they're, anecdotally, we're hearing already that people are, you know, people are waiting until somebody is critically ill in the ICU septic. I think it is only a matter of time before there is a maternal death that is directly attributable to lack of access to abortion care in a state that is, has a hostile policy. I think it's just a matter of when and how many um, will it take for there to be public outcry and realization that um, abortion is a, an important part of the health care that we offer during pregnancy to keep people safe. Yeah. And to sort of go a little further afield from abortion, I also read an article today that the U.S. Congress positively voted to codify contraception. But there were 150 mm-hmm. Congress people who voted no. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. a recovering Catholic, but and then, you know, not everyone in the United States is Catholic. It's like that was the whole thing that birth control was available to other people of other faiths. I mean, yeah. Is- yeah. I mean, I think what we know from a, what is the policy, what, what impact do policies that restrict access to contraception and abortion, but contraception in particular, the impact from the global experience would suggest that it negatively impacts, you know, women or people with reproductive capacity and their ability to get educated, their ability to, you know, have social mobility, their ability to earn money. I mean, I think that like it is kind of incomprehensible to me that we would take that back. And yet I do think that that is on the agenda and that is on the list of things that some folks want. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And my last question before I sort of let you explore questions that I haven't asked is that, (laughs) you know, childbirth in our country isn't as safe as in the other G7 or G20 countries. I mean, that's right. And I, I keep reading different papers about that. Thoughts on that? I think that it's important to realize that childbirth is one outcome of pregnancy. So is abortion. So is miscarriage. There are the same providers provide the care for for all of those, you know, conditions, all of those outcomes. And um, none of that care happens in a vacuum. So the policies that impact the health of our population at whole, as a whole, are born out. I mean, one of my colleagues says that pregnant people are the canary in the coal mine, right? Like we are seeing what the impact of broader health policies are in our outcomes during pregnancy. And and if you lump in neonatal and, you know, and um, perinatal morbidity and mortality, we also have unacceptable disparities and high rates of that compared to our um, sort of peer nations. And I think this is where reproductive justice comes in. The idea that it's not just it's not just pregnancy. It's sort of the right to live safely, the right to have health care, the right to to get pregnant or not get pregnant, the right to um, obtain health care during your pregnancy, and and the right to raise your children safely. That's something that as a society we haven't. It all it all is part of the same thing. I think you mentioned um, before we started recording a, a colleague who um, talks about gun violence. I think. You know, right, Dr. Chathan Santhia. I don't see how you can separate. I don't see how you can separate any sort of health policy from another health policy, and gun violence is one part of that policy. 
Reproductive health care is another part of that policy. Access to care through Medicaid or other, you know, options for people with without employer-sponsored health care. The fact that we've attached health care to employment in this country. You know, there's all sorts of things. I think it's the predictable results that we have bad outcomes. Yeah. As a someone who's a tad older than you are, who was in practice when the Clintons were trying to pass universal health care, I was working in an emergency department where I can tell you that 50% of the people that walked into my emergency department had no form of health care and they were using me as a primary care doctor. And I specifically Absolutely. trained in emergency medicine, so I wouldn't be a primary care doctor. And it's, exactly. a, it's a terrible use of, you know, resources and so forth. And they weren't getting the kind of care we did the best we could, but it, we weren't their primary doctor. We didn't know them on a, you know, week to week or month to month basis. So yeah, Dr. Sathia is a pediatric surgeon and he got involved in it because he was seeing his patients being injured by something. And he said like, look, if this were seatbelts or helmets or something like this, we could have a conversation about it. Right. Again, it may have to do with, you know, he comes from a a Canadian standpoint. He's from Toronto, but um, he's here in the US. But I think there's enough of us here as well. So it seems like doom and gloom. It seems like a lot of us are just sort of going like, what's going to happen next? What gives you a sense of hope or or gets you out of bed in the morning when it comes to this? Well, I feel like I have an enormous privilege. As a maternal fetal medicine provider, I do abortion care. I provide abortion care and I'm not on a list somewhere as an abortion provider. And so I have this enormous privilege to be able to speak and not know that my practice could be shut down because of what I, you know, unlike some of my colleagues. Um, so that's something that has given me this sort of energy to say, like, if I don't talk about what the real impact of this is on real patients, real people every day, the common impact of this, then who is going to, right? And I think for many of us that it has been galvanizing and sort of like, we can't talk about anything else. I would love to be talking about universal health care. I'd love to be talking about the cost of insulin. I'd love to be talking about all sorts of things. But until we have basic fundamental bodily autonomy, like we can't talk about those things. And I have hope because I am being asked to talk about it. And I am being asked to talk about it by legislators. I think, you know, in a in a state like Massachusetts, where we do have a friendly legislator, a legislature and as friendly a governor as a Republican governor will be, I think. I, I think we are fortunate because they are thinking about protecting patients and providers. And it is maybe the first time that people are realizing we speak a totally different language and maybe legislation doesn't ever adequately capture what happens in medicine. Um, I hope it stirs up a new conversation about what does it mean to be able to have agency over your body and what kinds of rights should be fundament- fundamental in this country. Um, I hope. And we will definitely give you another opportunity to talk. I think that in the months to come, there may be some legislation, if we're lucky, coming on the federal level. And we'd certainly love to reach out and speak with you again. Absolutely. Happy to talk. Thank you for your time. Thank you. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining me for this episode. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. You can send any tips or suggestions to editorial at pbroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Dr. Chloe Zara, and to Norm Dion, Sean Mullen, and Kate Rio for production assistance. 
Join me next time for an episode where we'll cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. <laughs> <laughs>